At this time, please take your copy of God's Word and find Mark chapter 8. We'll be in Mark chapter 8 this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse series through this gospel. And I'm excited to dive into a small section of this sacred text because it's packed full of truth. Relevant truth. The title of the message this morning is Spiritual Blindness. The text is Mark 8, verses 10 to 13. The Word of God says, And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Delmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Throughout the life of Jesus, as we've seen, I think, in these first seven chapters, his life so far has been mainly spiritual battles. Fight after fight, he fought, he fought, he fought the spiritual war until, as we'll see, his ascension. His whole life was a battle. In the beginning of his ministry, he fought the devil in the wilderness, and he defeated him. He fought the assaults of fickle, dull, dense, stupid men. He fought the inexplicable anguish at the thought of facing the wrath of God in the garden. So much so that he sweated blood, remember? Then, culminating this lifelong spiritual war, it all ended in torture, public humiliation, and the most agonizing method of execution on the planet. Infused and intertwined, In this life of spiritual warfare, he was the brunt of unrelenting, continuous attacks from religious, blind hypocrites. And this is what we see again in our passage this morning. He goes toe-to-toe again, unprovoked by blind hypocrites. We can expect Satan to do his work, can't we? We can expect immature men to act immaturely. We can expect Jesus to agonize as he pondered the wrath of his father. I don't know about you, but what shocks me the most and what continually shocks me is that every encounter Jesus had with the Pharisees This doesn't make any sense to me. Because they had the proof. 
They knew what Jesus did. They, they knew the miracles that he had performed. They knew the impact. They felt the impact as they heard Jesus teaching with authority. How can one remain in unbelief after witnessing so much? It's simple. It's because they're blind. They're blind. Paul would later write in his letter to the Corinthians that the God of this age, the devil, blinds the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Spiritual blindness is something that we all have experienced, but religious spiritual blindness is subtly different. So I'm talking about churchians today. I'm talking about those who maybe grew up in church or have been in church for a long time, but they act more like a Pharisee than a Christian. There can be spiritual blind people in church. And what this text reveals to us are the characteristics of a spiritually blind hypocrite. Three characteristics of those with spiritual blindness. We see those in verse 11, and then in 12 and 13, Jesus, the master teacher, the, the perfect man, the wisest man to ever live, provides us two ways to respond to blind religious people. First, let's see here in verse 10, Mark provides the, the geographical and historical context. It says, immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, immediately, there's that word again. We know this word very well. We probably gloss over it by now because Mark uses it so much. In fact, if you were to do a word search, he uses the word 39 times. More than all of the Gospels and more than all of the epistles combined. And again, I just want to remind you that this word here is significant and it's intentional because Mark is firing a machine gun at us, metaphorically speaking. He wants us to get to the point. He leaves out lots of detail. He wants you to understand that the life of Jesus was fast-paced. As one preacher said, grass did not grow under the Savior's feet. He was always moving. There was very little rest for Jesus. He had a mission to accomplish. So immediately after feeding the 4,000, he gets into the boat. He leaves the capitalists and goes to the other side of the sea to Galilee. And immediately after getting off the boat, here come his greatest adversaries, ready to pick a fight once more. So now that the setting is set, draw your attention to verse 11, where we see the first characteristic of a spiritual blind group. First of all, they stick together. Those with spiritual blindness stick together. They hang out. They 
They, 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 they huddle together and they do what they do. In verse 11, it says the Pharisees, plural, came out. And if you look at Matthew 16, the parallel passage, it says the Pharisees came out with the Sadducees. With the Sadducees. Now, this is significant because under normal circumstances, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not play well together. They, they were not friends. They were rivals. The Pharisees were the particular legalists. They were the cultural fundamentalists of the day. They were the zealots who were, as you should remember from Matthew, Mark 7, they were more loyal to rabbinic tradition than sacred scripture. The Sadducees, by contrast, had no regard for the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They also denied key doctrines, such as the existence of angels, the resurrection of the body, and the immortality of the soul. They were also the guardians of the temple policies and the corrupt operations. But despite this bitter rivalry, despite these two groups having polar opposite convictions, they band together to go after Jesus. They unite in their common rejection. They unite in their cause to discredit the Lord. Today, spiritually blind men and women do the same. Religious people who are enslaved to hypocrisy do the exact same thing. They stick together. How many of you have ever heard of the group called AHA, Abolish Human Abortion? None of you? Only Aaron? AHA, for short, is a very militant, extreme group of men and women whose goal in life is to see uh, abortion abolished. Now, for those of us who believe the Bible and haven't drank the liberal Kool-Aid, we hear that and we're like, sounds good to me. Maybe we should sign up, right? But the banner they fly is a facade. They are some of the most hateful, vindictive, insulting, rebellious people that claim to be Christians. They despise the local church. A lot of them aren't even members or attenders of a local church. They're completely rogue. They stand out on street corners with very graphic images of aborted, butchered babies. They protest churches. They stand outside of churches like this, and they yell at you as you are leaving and condemning you for not doing what they're doing. A-H-A. They stick together. They go after honest, earnest, average Christians 
people who are just trying to do life. But they're not doing what they're doing. So they band together and they go after churches. I could say more on AHA, but they don't deserve more time this morning. That's an extreme current example of how religiously blind, hardened people behave. Just like the Pharisees, they stick together, they they ignore the weightier things, and they go after Christ and his church. Spiritually blind stick together. They also love to argue. Have you ever met a religious person who just all they want to do is argue with you over things you don't really give two hoots about? Verse 11 They came out and they began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Why would they want to argue with the Lord? I mean, he had just fed 4,000. Would you want to argue with a man who just did that? Well, they argue because they, they believed a Jewish superstition that alleged demons could mimic earthly miracles. But only God could perform a miracle in the sky. And this, this superstition got so much traction because they would remember things like what happened in Pharaoh's court. Remember when, when the, the, the false magician mimicked the serpent episode? Well, so evidently, there's some truth to the fact that in that time, false prophets or magicians could do something that appeared to be miraculous. Don't ask me how. I don't know. I don't understand. That's why it's called a miracle. So they thought that uh, just because Jesus did what he did didn't really prove anything. Because the demons could mimic it. That's one reason why they argue with Jesus. Secondly, they argued because if they could get Jesus to say, I can't do that, then they would win. They were arguing not because they cared about the souls of the people they were supposedly supposed to be shepherding. They were arguing because they wanted to win. And if religiously blind people think they're right and that they could win, they jump on the chance to fight, don't they? Legalists love to argue about anything. Show me somebody who wants to fight about matters that are tertiary, and I will show you a son of a Pharisee. So, if you are an argumentative person, before you state your case, humble yourself and ask yourself, do I really have the facts? Ask yourself, have I thought through this? Have I truly interpreted the text or am I enslaved to a man-made tradition? Have I considered what the Proverbs say? 
the first to plead his case seems right, but another comes and examines him. Ask yourself, is what I'm worked up about over a biblical issue or a silly preference? I'll admit there was a time when I loved to argue. I love to argue about dumb things that I thought were important. I used to love to argue about homeschooling. I used to, she's laughing because she knows it's true. I used to love to argue about how women should dress in church. I used to love to argue about other things I'm ashamed of. By God's grace, I'm still I'm still a recovering legalist. But by God's grace, mainly through seeing how Jesus interacts with the legalist, I've been so convicted. So I point the thumb. But also, I urge you to ask yourself if you like to argue. Ask yourself those questions that I presented. Now, the other side of the coin, to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't argue at all, right? There, there is a time to present a case. There is a time to have a, a brotherly, gentle, loving debate. Theological discussion can be edifying and beneficial for your soul. So just because somebody may, from time to time, propose a alternative idea or solution don't just blow it off we are commanded to be apologists aren't we give a defense first peter 3 for the hope that is within you with gentleness jude says we're supposed to be a contender for the faith Right? Act, uh, Ephesians 6, the whole take up the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, right? We don't have the sword of the Spirit just so we can keep it on the bookshelf and use it for our own personal time. No, we, we take the word of God and we go to battle. We preach the gospel. We confront immorality like John did, remember? A few weeks ago he preached about John and how he lost his head over it. So so what I'm saying, and the point of the text isn't that we shouldn't argue. It's just that we shouldn't argue the way the Pharisees argued. We shouldn't argue with our fellow believers and our friends over hair-splitting, nuanced traditions or personal preferences or amoral methods. True Christians defend the faith against falsehood, but on the contrary, spiritually blind men argue over nitpicky, ridiculous superstition. You see that? That's what the Pharisees did because they were blind. They stuck together. They loved to argue. Thirdly, they possessed evil intentions. They possessed evil intentions. 
Look at verse 11 again. Seeking from him a sign from heaven. What's it say? To test him. Now, the word for test in the original is sometimes rendered as tempt, which underscores what's going on here. So if, you know, I know I need to be careful correcting NASB because it's probably the best one. But I would argue strongly that it could be translated as tempt because testing is good if God is the agent, right? Um. James 1, verse 3, says, The testing of your faith produces endurance. But tempting is bad. God tests us. Praise the Lord for that. Because we want to know if our faith is genuine now before it's too late. Amen? But tempting is bad. God is not the tempter. Satan is the tempter. The tempter always has ill intent. This is what the Pharisees were experts at. They sought to discredit any perceived threat to their position and tradition. Now what's ironic the most, I think, when it comes to the Pharisees, is that they they actually accused Jesus of doing what he did in the power of the devil. However, what's ironic is, that by tempting Jesus they were acting in accordance with the very nature of Satan himself. Jesus was never exempt from the evil motives of these people. And if he wasn't safe, brothers and sisters, from the temptation And evil intentions of men, how do we think we could ever be? Being, I hate to use the word victim because it's abused at this day and age, but if you ever find yourself being the victim of somebody with ill motives, it's nothing new. The Lord Jesus experienced it throughout his whole ministry. The spiritually blind They lack love, they lack grace, they lack mercy and patience because they're ruled by selfishness, anger, pig-headedness, and hate. They're like their father, the devil. Which reminds me of the old adage, like father, like son, right? Children of the devil act like the devil. Children of God act like Jesus Christ. So the application here is clear. It's simple. Straightforward, isn't it? Don't be a tempter. Don't approach your brothers and sisters with ill motives to see them fail, to see them fall, to be discredited, and leave the testing to God. Those are the characteristics of spiritually blind people. They stick together like a clique. They love to argue. And they have ill motives. So when these people come into our life, as the Pharisees came into Jesus' life, 
How do we respond to the spiritually blind when they oppose you? Well, number one, grieve for them. Spiritually blind people need Jesus too. Look how Jesus himself responded. Verse 12, he says, or Mark says, sighing deeply in the spirit. You know that response you have when you're just so shocked and sad? It's the same verb found in Mark 7, verse 34, when Jesus sighed in response to the man suffering from deafness. But here, it's what commentators call a hapax legomenon, which is just a nerdy word to say it's only used one time in the Bible. Because this word is intensified with a prefix. It makes it stronger, which means that this is a much more emotional response than he had with the deaf man. It's more intense. The feeling that Jesus experienced when he was, was being opposed by these blind men was very obvious and it was very strong. It broke his heart. And later we'll see Jesus weep over Jerusalem because of the wide-scale spiritual blindness he encountered in his ministry. So we should pity the spiritually blind. It's easy for us to respond in our flesh when we're opposed by religious hypocrites. We rightfully hate hypocrisy. We should despise it, but the spiritually blind are blind. They need a miracle regeneration. And the means by which men and women are regenerated is through the persistent, loving rebuke. That's the second way Jesus responded. Rebuke, if you hear that word and think really mean and harsh, that's not always the case. Rebuke can be gentle, right? Rebuke could be me coming along and say, brother, what you have going on is is not God's will. See, that, that's, that's, that's rebuke. It doesn't have to mean, you sinner! Stop doing what you're doing! It doesn't have to be that. This is precisely what Jesus did. He, he grieved for them. Then in verse 12 again, he rebuked them. He says, why does this generation seek for a sign? That's a rebuke. That's, you, Jesus wasn't honestly curious. He knew why they seek for a sign. And he was rebuking them. And he wasn't even he wasn't just rebuking the Pharisees in his immediate presence. What does it say? This generation. So he's he's also rebuking the people who follow the Pharisees. Why do you ask for a sign? I've given it to you. What more do you need? Grieve for them, rebuke them. 
as you just did here. And then at verse 12, he, there's another way he responds. He says, I say to you, no sign will be given. He flat out denies the request. He refuses their demands. He is not going to oblige them with the silly little opposition. So don't don't give in to legalists. So don't let the spiritually blind intimidate you, control you, falsely accuse you, put you on a false guilt trip. No. Don't be weak in that area. Know your scripture. Know the Lord. And you will be able to refuse these legalists. And you'll be safe from them. Rebuke them. Grieve for them. Refuse them. And then leave them alone. That's what Jesus did. He rebuked them. He says, nope, I'm not having it. And he gets in the boat and leaves. Sometimes separation is necessary. Separation isn't always bad. You know why? Because separation separates the truth from the lie. It separates the divisive from the united. It separates the true children of God from the pretenders. I remember not long after my conversion, I was attending this large Baptist church in Anchorage, Alaska. And you know how, like most churches, especially big churches that have like 60 rooms in their building, they usually come up to the pulpit and, and really nicely and, and, and very warmly um, invite new members to come to a separate room to talk to the pastor, talk to the staff, right? You guys experienced that before? And so so I did that right after my conversion. I, w- I went to go meet the pastor because, you know, that's what they told me to do, so I did it. And I remember waiting with my donut and my coffee, and I'm watching the pastor. You know, he's, he's an old Baptist pastor in his suit and tie and everything. And I'm watching him interact with this this really cranky, surly, disheveled-looking dude. And and I could see from a distance that, that he's this this other guy was escalating the discussion. I could tell in his face and in his expressions and his body language he was getting worked up about something. And the pastor was very calmly trying to reason with him. And after a few minutes of wait, he, could, he, knew, he knew that I was waiting for to talk to him. And eventually he just literally turns his back. And he, and he shakes my hand. I'll never forget that. Because there's a time to turn your back. There's a time just to move on. You cannot argue a blind man and saving faith. Grieve for them, show compassion. Give them gentle rebuke. Don't give in to their legalism. And let, let, let God do the work. That's what Jesus did. The Bible does say that one Pharisee came to faith, Nicodemus. We met him in John 3. He came to faith in Christ. 
despite his blindness, despite his influence. So to conclude the message today here, spiritually blind people, they stick together. They love to argue. They possess evil intention. So, my dear sheep, watch out. Be on guard. I'm convinced that the biggest threat to any local church is religious hypocrisy. Blind, stubborn men causing a ruckus. So watch out for them. Be ready. Then respond to them in a Christ-like way. Give them a gentle rebuke. Refuse their demands. Leave them alone. Be ready for a fight. Jesus lived his life for three years during his ministry. And it was just one battle after another. One battle after another. So my, my in closing, my, my last admonishment would be, let this text change you. You know how you let the text change you? You point the thumb first. Point the thumb first. Ask how you should apply this instead of asking how someone else can. Then after you have allowed the text to to grip you, to captivate you, and to change you, and then you take this and you use it to instruct others. So the message today, I made it short on purpose. Because I think that when you discuss something like this, a small bite can last a while. So chew on these things. Chew on the fact that we, we, we have to deal with religious, legalistic, blind men. We always will. And I'm afraid that sometimes Christians are not ready for it. They're not ready. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this text, Father. Thank you for allowing us to understand these things. Oh, and to prepare our hearts for the battle. We can't lie to ourselves. We can't pretend that even within these four walls, we'll be free from opposition. We'll be free from danger. As John Calvin said, the preacher ought to have two voices. One to fend off wolves and one to gather the flock. Lord, may this message serve two of those purposes. Maybe the true flock of God be equipped to handle legalists. Oh, Lord, if there are any sons of Pharisees in our midst this morning, Lord, Please break their heart, shatter it, and give them a new one so they can become children of God. And we cling to you 
as we just sung before. May we cling to the cross, the old wooden cross. May we cry out every day of our life, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. May we be those who grieve over the spiritual blindness surrounding us. May we be those who have the courage to, to rebuke these things in all its various forms. May we be wise enough to no longer cast pearls before swine. We need your grace, Lord. We need your enabling. We need your wisdom. We need your strength to do what you've called us to do. May the spiritual battle surrounding us, whether it be from unbelievers, whether it be from professing believers, may they not cause us to grow weary in doing good. May our vision be refocused on you and the Great Commission this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.